Welcome everyone to part two of the Lincoln Conspiracy. This one, a deep dive into the theories that surround Lincoln's assassination and the theory that Booth was somehow spared death and headed west, changing his name twice and being used as a sideshow mummy in his afterlife. Yes, I'm chuckling as I write this, but that dark side of the Booth saga is pretty interesting and one of those many things that makes history so enjoyable and often surprising to research. Let's get right to theory one. That there was a grand Confederate scheme hatched by Jefferson Davis and his Secretary of State Judah Benjamin, using Booth and any other means possible to take Lincoln and some of his cabinet members out of the picture. Lincoln's story researchers who support this theory believe that Confederate Secretary of State Judah Benjamin was deep in the plot to originally kidnap, which later became kill, Abraham Lincoln for a number of reasons, beginning with the fact that he, Judah Benjamin, burned all of his records before Richmond was evacuated and then escaped to England. Never a word was heard from him. The theory of a Confederate grand conspiracy portrays Booth as a rebel agent working to organize a band of men to kidnap Lincoln. When Richmond fell, those plans turned to assassination. First, there was the failed effort to blow up the White House, followed by the successful effort to kill Lincoln at the theater. Just as Lincoln and his agents may have ordered the killing of Jefferson Davis and his cabinet by Ulrich Dahlgren and his men, Judah Benjamin and Jefferson Davis were involved in the plans to kidnap and later assassinate Abraham Lincoln. The theory of Confederate complicity in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln is accepted by several of the current Lincoln assassination historians, scholars, researchers, and writers. The actual trigger for Booth's actions was the April 10th capture of explosives expert Thomas F. Harney, who was on his way to Washington to bomb the White House. Booth, knowing that Harney's mission had failed, tried to make up for Harney's disaster by taking matters into his own hands and killing the president at Ford's Theater. In the book, Decapitating the Union by author John C. Fazio, which, by the way, took five years of solid research to write. Fazio makes the case that the failed Dahlgren raid on Richmond, after which papers were found on Dahlgren's body, indicating that the purpose of the raid was to kill Confederate President Jefferson Davis, gave Confederate leaders a motive for revenge, believing that one unkind turn deserved another, and it was time to step up their game. And it's a strong point those historians make, giving the Confederacy a motive to assassinate, not kidnap, Lincoln. And there is a mountain of related circumstantial evidence to support a Confederate plot, beginning with efforts by the Confederate Secret Service to commit mayhem. Take note that Jefferson Davis appointed two men, Jacob Thompson and Clement Clay, to head the Confederate Secret Service in February of 1864 and immediately he asked the Confederate Congress to appropriate $5 million to fund it, and they did. Those operations would be based largely not in Richmond, but in Canada. The Confederate Secret Service planned or engaged in numerous acts of terrorism or biological warfare, including a raid on St. Albans, Vermont. Fires started in New York City hotels. That was the Election Day plot of 1864 a plot to poison New York City's water supply, 
a plot to infect Union soldiers and citizens with smallpox and yellow fever, a plot to kidnap Lincoln and hold him until Confederate soldiers were released, a plot to blow up the White House, which was discovered when a Confederate explosives expert, as we just explained, was captured with the goods and the orders on his way to do the job. And here is a timeline, and these are facts that can't be disproven. In the fall of 1864, Booth, John Surratt, and Lewis Powell met at least twice with the Confederate Secret Service in Montreal, proving Booth was acting upon a higher authority, not on his own. On October 13, 1864, a piece of evidence was found, a ciphered letter sent from Richmond to John Wilkes Booth. His, quote, friends would be set to work as directed. In November 1864, John Wilkes Booth begins recruiting for the Lincoln kidnap plot, that based on testimonies from Azeroth and others. November 29, 1864, Davis responds to offer to rid Confederacy of its deadliest enemies. January of 1865, conspirator Lewis Powell, and you remember he was the one who attacked Seward in his home, was seen meeting in Montreal with Clement Clay, the above-mentioned co-director of the Confederate Secret Service. On March 17, 1865, the plot to kidnap Lincoln and hold him to exchange for Confederate prisoners fails when Booth and his boyhood friend Mike McConaughey fail to grab Lincoln. March 27, 1865, John Surratt, remember Mary Surratt who hung was his mother, visits Richmond and meets with the Confederate Attorney General and Jefferson Davis himself. On April 10, 1865, Montreal Justice of the Peach was approached with information of a plot to kill Lincoln and others. That same day, the Confederate explosives expert plotting to blow up the White House was arrested. And now you can see why rumors were circulating around Washington, D.C. Just days before the assassination. Four days later, April 14, 1865, Lincoln was assassinated and Secretary Seward stabbed. April 19, five days later, in Charlotte, Davis learns of the assassination by telegram. And upon learning about it, Davis said, If it were to be done, it were better, it were well done. On April 21, 1865, Davis says, If the same had been done to Andy Johnson, the beast, and to Secretary Stanton, the job would then have been complete. From the closing summation given at the conspiracy trials following Lincoln's death, quote, Whatever may be the conviction of others, my own conviction is that Jefferson Davis is as clearly proven guilty of this conspiracy as is John Wilkes Booth by whose hand Jefferson Davis inflicted the mortal wound upon Abraham Lincoln. That's an excerpt from the closing summation for the government by John Bingham at those trials. And well, it makes a pretty good case that the conspiracy to kill Lincoln was originally hatched by the Confederacy in Richmond with financing arranged for in Canada. But that doesn't necessarily rule out the possibility that Vice President Johnson may have been involved in some way. Lincoln's wife, the First Lady, Mary Todd Lincoln, believed that Johnson had been involved in some way. Almost a full year after losing her husband, Mary Todd wrote a letter to her close friend, Sally Orne, that contained these words. That miserable, inebriate Johnson had cognizance of my husband's death. Why, was that card of Booth's 
found in his box? Some acquaintance certainly existed. I have been deeply impressed with the harrowing thought that he had an understanding with the conspirators, and they knew their man. As sure as you and I live, Johnson had some hand in all this. She calls Johnson a miserable inebriate, a drunk, no doubt remembering her husband's inauguration, when Johnson was too drunk to attend, causing the Lincolns considerable embarrassment. And she makes a reference to Booth's card. Here's the history on that. Approximately seven hours before shooting the president, Booth dropped by the Washington Hotel, which was Vice President Andrew Johnson's residence. Upon learning from the desk clerk that neither Johnson nor his private secretary, William A. Browning, was in the hotel, Booth wrote the following note. Don't wish to disturb you. Are you at home? Signed, J. Wilkes Booth. Browning testified before the military court that he found the note in his box later that afternoon. Beyond that, researchers have found that Booth and Vice President Johnson had known each other for some time, meeting when Booth was acting in Memphis at Woods Theater, and later when Johnson was the military governor of Tennessee, the two men had reportedly been with two sisters that they were entertaining as mistresses. On the other hand, Lincoln had chosen Johnson as his running mate because he was a Southern Democrat, although a loudly anti-slavery one, and Lincoln felt that having him on the ticket, which many advisors thought was crazy at the time, would help to convince Southern voters that should the war turn out badly, they would at least be treated with sympathy. Then there's the idea that the plot to kill Lincoln was helped along by disaffected Northerners, men who saw their profit opportunities disappearing as the war was drawing to a close. They wanted more control over Southern spoils. Lincoln wanted a solution that restored rights and opportunities during the Reconstruction, but the investors wanted more control. The price of cotton had risen dramatically, and cotton speculators were reaping the profits, but they feared that the good times would end as the war was drawing down. The Center for the Illicit Activity was DeMille and Company at 178 and a half Water Street in New York. You might remember this address as being an important clue in part one. As it turns out, the 178 and a half Water Street was in New York City. Keep this address in mind as it will appear again further on. Lafayette Baker definitely had ties to this address. In the ciphers found by a writer and researcher, Ray Neff, back in 1960, and we'll have more to say on Ray Neff in just a little while. Lafayette Baker had written, There were at least 11 members of Congress involved in the plot. No less than 12 Army officers, three naval officers, and at least 24 civilians, of which one was a governor of a loyal state. Five were bankers of great repute. There were nationally known newspapermen, and 11 were industrialists of great repute and wealth. Regarding the Northern opposition to Lincoln, on September 20, 1864, Thurlow Weed wrote to William Seward that opposition against Lincoln was equally formidable and vicious, embracing a larger number of leading men than I supposed possible. At the conspiracy trial following Lincoln's assassination, Samuel Chester, a friend of Booth's, testified Booth told him there were from 50 to 100 persons engaged in the conspiracy. In his lost confession, George Atzerodt stated, Booth said if he did not get him quick, the New York crowd would. 
He also testified that he saw Booth give some kind of sign to two parties on the avenue who he said were from New York. At the 1864 Democratic National Convention, Benjamin Allen of New York said, The people will soon rise, and if they cannot put Lincoln out of power by the ballot, they will by the bullet, to which, at the Democratic National Convention, loud cheers responded. A lenient peace was abhorrent to the radicals, and the cotton speculators feared an end to their big profits. Cotton traders saw the price of 141 per pound in November of 64 fall to 85 cents by February, and below 40 cents by early April. Anger grew. Lincoln had to go, and John Wilkes Booth, according to many theorists, was their man in the field to take action. I highly recommend the book Dark Union, The Secret Web of Profiteers, Politicians, and Booth Conspirators that led to Lincoln's death by Leonard F. Guttridge and Ray A. Neff. And there's that name, Ray Neff, again. And that makes this a good time to tell his story. First, remember that we discussed Lafayette Baker as being Secretary of War Edwin Stanton's number one spy, and the head of the National Detective Police, who was let go and then rehired upon Lincoln's assassination. In 1961, an article was published in the Old Civil War Times written by a New Jersey chemist named Ray Neff. Neff reported that he had located a coded message in the National Archives, possibly written by Lafayette Baker, that implicated him in the Lincoln plot. At the same time that the Neff article appeared, another author who was writing a book on the assassination, Vaughn Shelton, came upon the same material as did Ray Neff. In the archives, Shelton found a note written to John Surratt from New York City dated March 19, 1865, and signed by R.D. Watson. So who was R.D. Watson? Both Neff and Shelton believe it was none other than Lafayette Baker. The brief letter reads as follows. I would like to see you on important business if you can spare the time to come to New York. Please telegraph me immediately on the receipt of this, whether you can come on or not, and oblige. Yours, R.D. Watson. The address on the note was, and you've already guessed it, Care of DeMille and Company, 178 and a half Water Street, New York. The R.D. Watson letter was sent to a handwriting expert, and the authority said that, in his opinion, the letter matched the writing of Lafayette Baker. While conducting his research, Ray Neff came up with other evidence against Baker. In 1844, Lafayette Baker was an agent of a Canadian company called J.J. Shaffey Company, and you'll remember that name from Part 1. By 1864, records show that J.J. Shaffey paid Lafayette Baker a total of $148,894. That's a lot of beans to collect in a 20-year period, worth over $2 million today. Also on the J.J. Chaffee papers, the address 178 Half Water Street appeared. Neff also found a letter dated November 4, 1864, with the 178 Half Water Street, signed by a Thomas Caldwell, who was an agent for J.J. Chaffee & Company. This letter was addressed to John Wilkes Booth, and included four payments to the actor from August 24th through October 5th, 1864, totaling 
$14,548.40, worth about $400,000 today. Not bad for 40 days of work. The money was credited to the Bank of Montreal and paid in gold. Neff also came up with another telegram, this one dated April 2nd, 1865, to Geo Miller & Company, 130 Dearborn Street, Chicago, Illinois, saying, J.W. Booth will ship oysters until Saturday the 15th. When Neff checked the New York City directory for 1864, he discovered that a firm called DeMille & Company was located at 178 1⁄2 Water Street, the same address as that of the mysterious R.D. Watson letter. It is interesting to note that the date April 15th in the letter from George Miller was one day after Booth shot Lincoln. It is possible that the DeMille & Company, located at 178 1⁄2 Water Street, was just a dummy company used to hide the activities of the Lincoln conspirators. While this does not categorically implicate Baker in pre-assassination planning, it asks questions that still have not been satisfactorily explained. Neff also believes he uncovered a code in a magazine article. The article was written by Lafayette Baker, and Neff says he cracked the code, which implicated Secretary of War Stanton in Lincoln's assassination. While browsing through old magazines at a used bookstore, Neff came across a magazine called Coburn's United Service Magazine, Series 11, 1864. In the periodical, Neff came across two coded messages written by Lafayette Baker concerning his participation in the events of April 1865. The coded messages detailed the following information. Stanton was one of the prime movers in the assassination plot, along with at least 11 members of Congress, a number of army officers, 24 civilians, and an important governor of a loyal state. He wrote down the names of the conspirators in another volume of Coburn's United Service magazine, which has never surfaced. So there's a gem out there for you treasure hunters, a volume of Coburn's United Service magazine, article by Lafayette Baker. Baker also said that after the assassination, he was constantly followed by certain people and was in fear of his life. According to Neff, Lafayette Baker, in the piece in Coburn's, wrote in a substitution cipher, where each letter was represented by another, so as to hide its true meaning. Part of the cipher containing to Stanton reads as follows. In a new Rome there walked three men, Judas, a Brutus, and a spy. Each planned that he should be the king when Abraham should die. One trusted not the other, but they went on for that day, waiting for the final moment, when with pistol in his hand, one of the sons of Brutus should sneak behind that cursed man and put a bullet in his brain and lay his clumsy corpse away. But alas, as fate would have it, Judas slowly fell from grace, and with him went Brutus down to their proper place. But lest one is left to wonder what has happened to the spy, I can safely tell you this. It is I. Neff claims that the Brutus reference referred to Stanton. Another part of the coded message reads as follows. There were at least 11 members of Congress involved in the plot, no less than 12 army officers, of which one was a governor of a loyal state. Five were bankers, of great repute. Three were nationally known newspaper men, and 11 were industrialists, of well-known repute. 
and wealth. $85,000 was contributed by the named persons to pay for the deed. Only eight persons knew the details of the plot and the identity of the others. I fear for my life, L.C.B. Neff found a copy of Baker's will, and in it he found that at the time of his death he had amassed a fortune of over $200,000, more money than he could ever have saved from his government salary. But what are the charges against Stanton? He only sent one detective to protect the president at Ford's Theater, and that detective, John Parker, left his post, thus allowing Booth to enter the presidential box. He was never punished after the fact. Why? Also, Stanton gave orders to block every escape route out of Washington except the one used by Booth following the assassination, and he also failed to send telegrams out of the city to the army notifying them of the shooting. The actions by Stanton and the coded messages allegedly written by L.C. Baker make some pretty good reading. So now you've heard some of the major theories that apply to Lincoln's assassination and the attack on Seward and who was involved. And this is where we enter part two of today's episode, The Afterlife of John Wilkes Booth. The theory that Booth was not killed in the barn, instead was able to bypass it, and that another man died in his place, has been around for over a hundred years. Doubt as to just who the dead man was began not long after our theoretical barn victim was shot. Here's how one theory goes, this being the brainchild of the authors of the Lincoln Conspiracy, Balzinger and Sellier. Lincoln's assassination by Booth on April 14th is said to have thrown the plotmeister Stanton and his allies into a panic, fearing that their involvement in the kidnap plots would be exposed. A frantic search somehow turned up Booth's coat, which contained a highly incriminating diary documenting meetings with several members of the Stanton group. This runs counter to the official explanation that Booth's coat and diary were among his effects at the barn. A few days later, on April 26th, a Confederate double agent named James William Boyd, mistakenly identified as Booth, was shot and killed in Virginia, according to these authors. Stanton, aware of the mistaken identity, allegedly saw to it that the autopsy records were altered to remove or obscure descriptions of the body that weren't consistent with Booth's. Booth's diary, now in Stanton's personal possession, they said had 13 pages of incriminating references removed. Recently, by the way, it's been confirmed that 48 pages are missing if you count both sides of the sheets. Lafayette Baker quietly pursued the hunt for Booth as far as Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, where the trail went cold. At the military trials of Booth's conspirators, theorized to not have been members of the Stanton group, held in May and June of 1865, in the months immediately following the assassination, according to theory, the proceedings were rushed, the government produced witnesses against the defendants who the authors suggest were paid, and even the trial records were supposedly altered. Four of Booth's co-conspirators were hanged on July 7, 1865. Others received long prison sentences, but Booth himself, the book concludes, eventually escaped to England, his whereabouts after that uncertain. As to whether the body recovered was Booth's or not, we could cut right through all that if we had the picture that was taken of Booth's body 
when it was being transported back to the Capitol. But guess what? Not a series of photos, but one was taken, as it turns out. And here's that story. Thanks to a 2012 article in one of my favorite magazines, National Geographic Magazine. A crucial account of what happened while photographers Gardner and O'Sullivan were on the ship comes from James A. Wardell, a former government detective who had been assigned to accompany the two men to the ship and on the ship. Wardell's account, given in 1896 to a historian who was searching for the missing Booth photograph, appears in Witness to an Era, The Life and Photographs of Alexander Gardner by D. Mark Katz, and it reads... Under no circumstances was I to allow him or his assistant out of my sight until they had taken a picture and made the print. And then I was to bring the print and the glass, meaning the negative, back to the War Department and give it only to Colonel L.C. Baker, Chief of the Secret Service, or Secretary of War Stanton. Gardner was told that only one plate was to be made, and it was to have only one print made and both were to be given me when finished. Gardner took the plate and then gave it to the assistant and told him to take it and develop it and to make one print. I went with him and even went into the dark room. About 4 p.m. in the afternoon, I got the plate and the print from the assistant and took it to the war department. I went into the outer office and Colonel Baker was just coming out of the war office. I gave him the plate and print and he stepped to one side and pulled it from the envelope. He looked at it and then dismissed me. That picture and the plate has never been found, despite extensive searches through the National Archives. Why did Stanton have it destroyed? You've got to ask that. That opens the possibility that somehow, some way, Booth may have escaped, with or without help. Now enter Finnis. L. Bates. The following are excerpts from a fascinating article written by Alva Johnson for the Saturday Evening Post in 1938. It's in the public domain. Finnis L. Bates of Memphis did more than anybody else to make John Wilkes Booth famous, but he also did more than anybody to discredit him. Bates was a 21-year-old lawyer in Granbury, Texas in 1872, when he decided to represent his fellow townsman, John St. Helen, in an excise case. The two men became close friends, and when John St. Helen fell ill, Bates tried to save him, and finally succeeded. But before the turnaround, as St. Helen was preparing to meet his maker, he told Bates to get a pen and a sheaf of paper and take some notes. He gave Bates his family history, including small details, and a detailed account of the plot, as well as his escape, as well as how his personal papers and coat and diary ended up in the hands of a Confederate soldier named Ruddy, who had backtracked to pick those lost things up from the wagon in which Booth had traveled and then been pulled out of by friendly Confederate soldiers, who took him to the Garrett farm, left him, and later returned with a horse to tell him he had to get away because the Yankee soldiers were on the way. The story that he gave Bates was incredible and lengthy. Most of all of it was very believable, including the photo and frame he had recently taken of himself, now 12 years after the assassination, 
which Bates showed to General Dana and others, including Booth's brother, who had all been personally involved with Booth, and asked them to identify the person, which they did as John Wilkes Booth, only a little older. It also looks very much like a cover-up took place, possibly for a number of reasons, that the soldiers responsible for tracking Booth wanted that $200,000 reward money, two, that when our government realized they had killed the wrong man, they had to take steps to hide that fact, and they took many, in order to cover a number of serious blunders, as well as to fool the public into thinking Booth was dead, so that the clamoring for his hide would end, and the public could find closure. Bates was doubtful all the way through St. Helen's confession, not only then, but for years, until St. Helen's finally gave him that picture of himself, and then gave up the ghost, giving Bates more reasons to wonder. And that's when Bates went on a full-scale search for the truth, contacting a number of people, including two generals who were closely connected with the search for Booth, as well as a number of men who served and were involved in every step of the process from removing the body from the Garrett farm to transporting it to its final resting place, to exhuming it afterward for transport to the family plot in Baltimore. The results of those communications at witness testimonies left me feeling here at 1001 that there was a distinct possibility that Booth did survive the barn, that the wrong man was killed by Boston Corbett, and that Booth survived. St. Helen made other deathbed confessions and survived them, but in 1903 he ratified his final deathbed confession by actually dying. There is documentary evidence of the honesty of Bates in this matter. He had written a letter to the War Department to see if he could get a reward by delivering John Wilkes Booth alive a year previous to his dying. Huge rewards had been offered by the War Department in 1865, but they had been collected by the men who trapped the alleged Booth in the Garrett barn in Virginia. But the War Department wrote back to Bates that they took no interest in the matter. Years after he had sought to deliver Booth on the hoof, Bates identified the suicide in Enid, Texas, as the self-confessed assassin of Lincoln. An undertaker at Enon embalmed the body on the expectation that the Booth family or the War Department would claim it, but it remained unclaimed for years. Bates finally had a good idea and procured it. This transfer was sanctioned by an Oklahoma judge, apparently on the theory that the Memphis lawyer would accord decent burial to his former client. Instead of this, Bates set out to commercialize John Wilkes Booth. He leased and rented his old friend and wrote a book with the title The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth. The subtitle, Written for the Correction of History. I really am going to read this. Someone contact me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com and convince me that it's a crazy idea. In the mummification of the body of Booth, arsenic was apparently used to preserve the skin after removing the organs. Booth or someone else had already begun the arsenic process by slowly poisoning himself with arsenic, as the story goes. Bates hired the body out to showmen from time to time. At the Waco Cotton Palace in 1900, it attracted the attention of William Evans, Carnival King of the Southwest, who started Mummy John on his big-time career. Evans hired the attraction at the rate of $1,000 for every 20 weeks, the $1,000 to be paid in advance. He also posted a $40,000 bond as a guarantee that John would be returned in good repair. Now, Bill Evans had made his start in the entertainment field by marrying one of his own wives 
20 times in 20 different towns. Public weddings used to be big civic celebrations in the Southwest, probably because women were so rare there for so many years, and Evans staged his like operas. He differed from some of his competitors in that he always married the same bride, and in later life, he used to claim to be the greatest polygamist in the United States. Evans would begin by stampeding newspaper offices with the romantic details of his approaching outdoor nuptials. Hammering away at the slogan that all the world loves a lover, he convinced local merchants that there was no better way to advertise than to give the happy couple wedding presents. From the sale of the loot of 20 weddings, he obtained a modest stake and soon had his own tent. In time, he became known as the Carnival King of the Southwest and the possessor of the greatest freak animal show in the country. Evans had intended to use John as the headliner of his carnival, but the new attraction was a disappointment from the start. John the Mummy never really drove expenses. In his days on the legitimate stage, John Wilkes Booth had been a great actor. It would have killed him all over again to know that his mummified body was a cowtown attraction being displayed with six-legged sheep and bulls with bulldog faces. And maybe he did find out, because his legacy was becoming a jinx to his owners and renters. That carnival train was wrecked on its way to San Diego. Fortunately, Booth's body escaped intact, so the 40K bond was saved, but eight employees and most of the freak animals were killed. That wreck must have resembled something out of the first chapter of a Stephen King novel, but instead of a deserted carnival setting in coastal Maine, this was a lonely railroad track in the southwest. And then when the Carnival King was seeking to reorganize his show after the wreck, John was kidnapped. This was a serious matter. Not only was the mummy costing Evans a rental of $1,000 every 20 weeks, but its continued disappearance would mean the forfeiture of that $40,000 bond he'd put up. Week after week, Evans ran an advertisement in the billboard, the Bible of the circus and carnival world, offering a reward of $1,000 for information leading to the recovery of Mummy John. One day he met the alleged kidnapper on the street in San Diego, and there they had a knockdown, drag-out fistfight, which ended in jail for both of them. The controversy ended in a stalemate. Evans had little chance of winning a civil suit, because it would be impossible to establish the title. The law is a little bit vague on that subject. Now, I'll give you an example. A well-known entertainment guy from that era named Tex Rickard had a narrow escape from trouble when he exhibited some stuffed bandits in Madison Square Garden. They were very bad men from the Southwest and came to Tex with the highest credentials. Tex thought them marvelous and used to stare at them by the hour, exclaiming from time to time, I never seen such a thing. The famous promoter was notified that the New York law required them to be buried in three days, whether they were stuffed or not. After that, Tex ran the show like a speakeasy. He kept two lookouts at the door and allowed only his personal friends to come in. The Carnival King had a wholesome respect for the courts and saw the folly of going to the law over the unburied dead. His problem was solved one day, however, when the kidnapper of Mummy John came in and said, I claim the reward. Pay me the $1,000 and I'll return him in good condition. Well, Evans got it back, but it brought him nothing but bad luck. 
he suffered setback after setback in the carnival business, until he finally gave it up and retired to a small potato farm in Delclo, Idaho. That mummy might have stayed there a long time at the farm, casting a mild blight over the potato patch, except for the fact that an automobile drove into Declo one day in 1928, containing J. N. Wilkerson, a Kansas City lawyer and one of the leading authorities on Booth. In the early 20s, Mr. Wilkerson had picked up a set of books called Modern Eloquence for a buck fifty at a second-hand bookstore. Turning its pages one day, he had read the oration of Special Judge Advocate John A. Bingham, a part of which we just read earlier, against Booth's alleged co-conspirators in the assassination of Lincoln. Among other things, Bingham had charged that Jeff Davis had offered a reward of $100,000 for the assassination of Lincoln. Wilkerson, who had been born in Alabama, believed this to be false. He first read the transcript of the trial, and then began to dig into the history of the period. He traced the movements of Booth in Canada, where the conspiracy against Lincoln was organized. The first intention had been to kidnap Lincoln and hold him as a hostage to compel the North to exchange prisoners with the South. Grant having, in the latter days of the war, put a stop to the practice of exchanging. But the kidnapping plot fell through, as you well know. Wilkerson collected evidence which convinced him that the actual assassination was a northern, rather than a southern plot. That Stanton, Vice President Johnson, and other extreme haters of the Confederacy wanted to get Lincoln out of the way, because they were disturbed over his plans for lenient treatment of the South. These northern statesmen, as Wilkerson interpreted his evidence, set the stage for Booth's crime and made arrangements for Booth's escape. Wilkerson became convinced that another man had been killed and buried in, in Booth's stead. The investigator had gone deep into this before he heard that an alleged mummy of Booth had been barnstormed in the country. Wilkerson wrote at once to Finnis L. Bates, the original sponsor for the mummy. But Bates, during that meantime, had died. The Kansas City historian dropped the subject from his mind until, as he happened to be motoring through Decklow, his attention was attracted by the sign, See the Man Who Murdered Lincoln. Wilkerson looked up the broken carnival king in his potato patch and asked several questions that the king couldn't answer. Eh, to tell the truth, said the king, I don't know whether it's the body of Booth or not. They told me it was, and I believed them. If it is Booth, said Wilkerson, there ought to be a cut on the right eyebrow. When he was playing Richard in Richard III, another actor slashed him over the right eye with the sword in the duel scene. So the two men examined Mummy John and satisfied themselves that the scar was in its right place, right there over the right eye, what looked like a sword cut. And Booth's right thumb was broken when a curtain fell on it, continued Wilkerson. It was a deformity that made him very sensitive, and he always tried to conceal it. Let's take a look. So the Kansas City historian and the Carnival King satisfied themselves that indeed the mummy had Booth's deformed thumb. Now this ought to clinch it one way or the other, said Wilkerson. Booth had a scar on the back of his neck. It had been described by Dr. May of Washington, who removed a wen from his neck. The wound was healing nicely when, in a love scene, the famous actress Charlotte Cushman seized him in such a violent embrace that the stitches were broken. 
an ugly scar resulted. So the two men turned Mummy John over, and they found what they considered to be the scar. This nearly convinced Wilkerson, but he still wanted to know more. He suggested a tour through all the towns in the southwest where John Wilkes Booth was supposed to have ranged under various aliases from about 1870 until his suicide in 1903. Wilkerson offered to break off his own trip and go along as Barker for John. The Carnival King figured that, with a real historian to gather affidavits backing up the mummy, Mummy John might still make some money. The trip was historically rich, but financially unprofitable. Here and there John was a draw, but usually he lacked magnetism. After leaving Declo, the first stop was Salt Lake City. The historian and the Carnival King took in 200 bucks, but were then ordered to leave town. There has been a complaint against you, said the policeman. The principal of the high school charges that you are teaching false history. And so they went with that cloud hanging over their head. Business was good at Big Spring, Texas, until the local authorities seized them. They were tried by the Justice of the Peace in the back room of his bakery and fined $50 for transporting a corpse without a license. In order to avert trouble of this kind, they went to the state capitol at Austin and showed their traveling companion to the chief health officer of the state. "'Well, this is not a corpse, but a mummy,' said the health official. "'If you get into any more trouble of this kind, refer the local people to me.'" While at Austin, Mr. Wilkerson took the precaution of incorporating. He obtained, for a fee of $10, a charter for the American Historical Research Society. This is an imposing document with the Lone Star seal on it, and it has saved the operators of the mummy from trouble on numerable occasions. Mummy John now travels in a truck with the American Historical Research Society painted on the front of it. The attraction is advertised by handbills, the first words of which are, The American Historical Research Society presents John Wilkes Booth. For a while, Wilkerson and his partner operated successfully at Odessa, Texas, where there had just been an oil strike. Everybody wanted to spend their money, and they threw silver dollars into the collection plate. John was hitting upwards of $25 an hour when a woman spectator said to Wilkerson, If you want to know about Booth's life after the assassination, you ought to go and see Judge G.M. Shank of Lubbock. He knows all about it. In spite of the rain of money, Wilkerson stopped the show at once and started on a long trip to Lubbock, Texas, where he found Circuit Judge Shank. The judge told of meeting a stranger at breakfast in Guthrie, Oklahoma, in 1901. They got into a conversation, and the judge stated that he hailed from Meridian, Texas. Why, that's John Wilkes Booth's old hiding place, said the stranger, who then started to tell the ramblings of Booth after the assassination. The judge was held spellbound, and spent most of the day and night with his new friend, who was full of sensational details of Booth's escape in 1865 and his meanderings in the Southwest. From the description of the man, Mr. Wilkerson concluded that the judge was hearing the tale from the lips of Booth himself. The story cleared up many points that had puzzled Wilkerson, but particularly the matter of certain tattoo marks missing on John. Before the assassination, Wilkes had the initials of J.W.B. tattooed on his right hand. 
they are not found on the mummy. The stranger who talked to Judge Shank said that Booth had the initials removed by a friendly tattoo remover in New Orleans. Wilkerson made almost a house-to-house canvas in Glenrose, Iredell, Granbury, and other towns in Texas where the alleged Booth had been known as John St. Helen. From scores of people, Wilkerson obtained descriptions of St. Helen which seemed to fit Booth. Everybody was particularly emphatic about St. Helen's elegance of dress and courtliness of manners. St. Helen ran two saloons at Granbury, the Blackhawk and the Lady Gay. Wilkerson found old patrons who testified that drinking men went to those saloons as to a school of etiquette and learned the ways of high society merely by observing St. Helen. One of Wilkerson's witnesses was Ashley W. Crockett, a grandson of Davy Crockett. Ashley, a Texas journalist for more than half a century, was a cub reporter of the Granbury Vidette in the early 1870s. He recalled how St. Helen came into the Vidette office one day with a tray covered with choice liquors, bowed in his most distinguished manner, and said, A treat for the office force, then withdrew elegantly before anybody could thank him. Many old-timers recalled John St. Helen as the man who introduced backgammon into that part of the world. Wilkerson has found nothing in the literature to show that John Wilkes Booth played backgammon in this country before 1865. His conjecture is that the assassin picked it up in England, where he is believed to have spent some years between 1865 and 1870. At Granbury, Wilkerson found Mrs. Eula Carter, who said that her late husband knew St. Helen to be Booth. St. Helen's earliest known appearance in Texas was at Iredell, in Bosque County, where he taught school. At that time he boarded with a man named Green Williams. Wilkerson here found, to his dismay, that St. Helen had confessed, not that he was Booth, but that he was a son of Marshal Ney, who, according to some authorities, escaped after Waterloo, and settled in the United States. St. Helen went so far as to tell some of his Iredell friends that he had called himself St. Helen after the island of St. Helen, and did this as a tribute to Napoleon, the least that a son of Marshal Ney could do to honor his old commander. This complicated matters, and puzzled Wilkerson for some time. His conclusion, however, was that the stranger obviously had a past, and told the Ney story in order to parry the suspicion that he might be Booth. Another awkward episode occurred in Texas. The technique of operating the mummy was a delicate one. If an admission charge was made, it was necessary to take out a local theatrical license. The license fee was prohibitive in view of John's low average earning power. Therefore, admission was free. But as the spectator filed out of the exhibition truck, Gentle pressure was put on him to contribute toward paying the expense of the culture-spreading institution. A plate was conspicuously exhibited with a few quarters and half dollars in it. Dimes, nickels, or pennies that got into the plate were deftly removed to avert their unfavorable psychological effect. Wilkerson had made an admirable rule to the effect that the contributions of children should be graciously returned. But Wilkerson was absent for a time while John was playing in Temple, Texas. Carnival King, who had never approved of the practice of depriving minors of the right to contribute, high-pressured a lot of school children for small change. And that got the local community pretty angry, 
and the entire American Historical Research Society was run out of town by the police. During his long search for evidence, Wilkerson uncovered five living John Wilkes Booths, four of whom were related to the assassin of Lincoln. All had changed their names. By personal interviews and by correspondence, he made contact with many other relatives of Booth. From many of these, he obtained accounts of meetings with John Wilkes Booth long after the assassination. Blanche Booth, a niece of John Wilkes Booth, was in El Reno, Oklahoma, with a touring company in December 1902. She made an affidavit that a man called at her lodgings, gave her a card, and said, Blanche, wouldn't you like to see Johnny? She slammed the door in his face, regarding him as a stage-door Johnny. But when she looked at the card, she found the name John Wilkes Booth, in what seemed to be her uncle's handwriting. Wilkerson's researches indicate that Booth, then using the name David E. George, went to Enid immediately thereafter, stayed drunk for three weeks, and then committed suicide. That historian conjectures that the rebuff from his niece broke Booth's heart. During his travels in connection with the Booth saga, Wilkerson stumbled onto some interesting historical material in Beloit, Wisconsin. In April 1898, American newspapers had carried reports that John Wilkes Booth had been seen in Brazil. This report stimulated Booth history, or myth, all over the country. Walter Hubble, an actor, carried the news to Dr. Joseph Booth, a brother of John Wilkes Booth. According to Hubble, Joseph exclaimed, South America? By the last we heard of him, he was in Oklahoma. In Beloit, the Brazil report brought two witnesses to light who testified that Booth had indeed made his escape in 1865. The first of these was Mrs. J.M. Christ, whose story appears in the Beloit Daily News of April 19, 1898. In 1865, she was Mrs. Thomas Haggett, the wife of a Confederate blockade runner. According to her story, she and her husband were on board the Mary Porter in Havana six weeks after the assassination when John Wilkes Booth came aboard and sailed with them to Nassau. She stated that, because Booth was still suffering from a broken leg, she gave up her cabin to him, and at the end of the voyage, he rewarded her by giving her his ring with J.W.B. engraved inside. Having kept the secret for 33 years, Mrs. Christ now felt entitled to talk. On the following day, Wilson D. Kenzie of Beloit gave an interview to the same paper. He said that he had known Booth intimately in New Orleans and had been at the Garrett Barn in Virginia when the man supposed to be Booth was killed. Kenzie said that the slain man was a sandy-headed fellow who bore no resemblance to Booth. Wilkerson later found evidence indicating that Booth had intended to go to Nassau if he escaped. One of Booth's accomplices in the kidnapping plot was Sam Arnold. After his release from prison, Arnold wrote a magazine article on the scheme to abduct Lincoln. One of his statements said delay had resulted because John Wilkes Booth had busied himself with arrangements to ship his stage wardrobe and other effects to Nassau. According to Mrs. Christ, Booth sailed from Nassau on the Wild Pigeon for England. Incidentally, when St. Helen first appeared in Texas in 1870, he called himself a British subject. Wilkerson ended his travels with John at Aberdeen, Washington. At Aberdeen, according to his custom, he went to the mayor and got permission to place the mummy on exhibition. 
There was, however, a feud on between the mayor and the license commissioner, and the license commissioner had Wilkerson arrested. The historian had to plead eloquently to avoid being locked up. The judge fined him $10 and then suspended sentence. But Wilkerson had had enough. He broke up his partnership with Carnival King Evans, who, shortly before he was killed, sold John to the present owners. Wilkerson's researchers have won recognition from Lincoln experts. He delivered a lecture on his investigations before the Lincoln Club in Chicago, and several distinguished Lincolnians were considerably impressed. Dr. Otto L. Schmidt, president of the Illinois State Historical Society and president of the Chicago Historical Society, wrote a modified testimonial in favor of John, saying that the subject was of great interest and well worth further scientific investigation. The mummy was exhibited on the campus of Northwestern University at Evanston. The faculty ordered it off. Dr. Schmidt, however, interceded for it, and the show was allowed to go on. In 1933, Mummy John was x-rayed, operated on, and otherwise studied by a group of medical men and criminologists in Chicago. It was claimed that the fractured leg, the broken thumb, and the scar on the neck were all verified. The operation was performed because it was alleged that the x-ray revealed a metal object deep inside of the old trooper. After prolonged drilling into the mummy, which was stated to be hard as rock, a bit of metal was produced with an engraving that looked like the letter B. This resulted in the speculation that Booth, in some great emergency, had sought to conceal his identity by swallowing his ring, which had been gradually digested until only a fragment was left. The exploration of John, however, took place under the flashlights of newspaper photographers, and its results failed to gain wide acceptance. Further, one medical man asserted there was no sign of the all-important identifying scar on the neck. There is not much conflict among the authorities on the assassination and on the flight of Booth into Virginia. Those who believe in Booth's escape tell it two ways. The first way is that Booth was warned and made his escape several hours before the barn was surrounded. The second way is that he escaped by an unwatched door after the barn was in flames. Those who believe that Booth was killed in the barn have different versions. One is that he committed suicide. The other is that he was shot by a Federal through a crack in the barn. Credit for the killing has generally been assigned to Sergeant Boston Corbett. The orders, though, were to take Booth alive. But Corbett said that God had instructed him to kill the man. And now let me throw some cold water on the Booth survived theory. The Garretts, who had been with Booth shortly before he was killed, identified him immediately after. In fact, one of the Garrett young ladies, who had been smitten with the young actor, was caught in the act of attempting to snip a lock of hair from the dead man's head. The tattooed initials JWB were found, although witnesses disagreed on the location. Dr. May, who had attended Booth, at first said the dead man bore no resemblance to Booth, but he reversed his opinion on seeing the scar on the neck. In 1869, the body was turned over by the War Department to the Booth family and buried in the Booth plot in the Greenmont Cemetery at Baltimore. The body was identified by members of the family and by a dentist's report. From the very beginning, however, witnesses appeared who denied that the dead man was Booth. The identifiers varied in their descriptions. Isola Forrester, quoting from different witnesses, sets forth that one said the dead man's hair was gray. 
Another said it was reddish-brown. Another said it was jet-black. One of the reasons that Miss Forrester gives for scoffing at the theory of St. Helen, now Mummy John, was Booth, is that St. Helen was a commonplace individual. This, however, flies in the face of all the affidavits which picture St. Helen as outrageously elegant and distinguished. The handwriting of St. Helen and of Booth have been compared with negative results. The experts of one side say there is no resemblance, but the experts on the other side say there is. Researchers are still trying to find conclusive evidence that it is indeed the body of John Wilkes Booth that lies in the family graveyard in Maryland, but the family has thus far refused any and all attempts to secure a DNA sample, which would be compared to the portions of vertebrae that the medical examiner took from Booth's neck during the autopsy. Uh, Of course, if they autopsied the wrong man, and the wrong man is buried in the family plot, the results would match. But that would prove nothing, unless DNA was pulled from a surviving relative of Booth, and that was used in the place of the neck bone. And more researchers have compared the existing photo of St. Helens, a.k.a. David George, a.k.a. John Wilkes Booth, at age 42, to that of John Wilkes Booth, age 26. And guess what? they found a 96% likelihood that they match. Personally, I think this could go either way, and there are still mountains of pros and cons we haven't covered, but you got a good portion of it here, enough to do your own investigating from this point on. I hope you enjoyed it. Subscribe now to 1001 Stories for the Road and catch up with some of our classic adventure novels there for a few weeks until I can bring you Finnis L. Bates' highly controversial story which I guarantee you will find interesting. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Be sure to catch our newest 1001 show, the 1001 History Challenge, and test your history and trivia knowledge there. Find out if you're up for the challenge. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.